The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Morning, guys. Um, I say it every week, uh, it seems like, but it's fun to be part of a church plant. There's always fun, crazy stuff going on. Jamin was running around like crazy beforehand. Things weren't working right. He kept saying, I have frequency issues, and nobody knew what he was talking about, but we just like, man, that sounds really, really bad. And he had this like worried look on his face, and, uh, and you know, you saw what happened with the, the words to that song. Um, but no matter what happens this morning, it's better. A friend of mine who's planting down in North Charleston, uh, he sent me a picture this morning. Uh, he's, they're meeting at a school as well, and he arrived at the, the elementary school they're meeting at, and the gates were locked. And he said, it was just in church planning. Like, here we are. So it, no matter what happens, at least we're air-conditioned, and uh, we're not stuck outside at 97 degrees. So it's a, it's a net win for us. Uh, we're finishing up a 13-week series that we've been in, uh, the book of Nehemiah. Um, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, I hope if you've been along for the ride, I hope you've enjoyed as well. By the way, I have nothing to say about David's close this week, nothing to say at all. Um, and uh, it's, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun. The question when we, anytime you go through a series and you finish like this, and maybe you're not asking this question because you just showed up or you don't really think about Nehemiah between Sundays, which I hope you are thinking about it, reading it, praying about it, studying what God has to say to you from the book. But the question when we finish a book like this is, all right, so what? All right, so we studied Nehemiah. Maybe I learned a couple of things. Maybe I didn't. We talked about a guy who's doing a building project. That seems okay. Um, and, and now we just go on the next thing. But what do we take away from it? So the goal for this morning is to, to land and say, all right, what do we take away from the book of Nehemiah? Whether you've been on this journey or not, whether you just came in with us today, or you like wandered in, you have no idea what's going on, you came to register your kid for school, and uh, you ended up sitting down because we gave you like this mini free, I think, I think those, those little Cinnabon mini things, I think there's, I feel like they lace it with something inside, because it looks like it shouldn't be as good as it, you eat it, like man, I need to have another one of those, they're addictive, and I, I the reason that some people keep coming back, I, I, I'd wholly commit to the fact that we have those little Cinnabon things every week. Um, so the story of Nehemiah, in case you don't know, is a guy, he's a servant to the king. He's the, the, the wine taster to the king. Um, somebody was telling me this week, uh, John, he had a theory. He's like, you know what, I think, I think if he was that high ranking, like he wasn't, like his title might have been wine taster, but he wasn't tasting it himself. I bet he had servants that he'd have them taste the wine first because the reason that a king would have a wine taster would be to make sure that nobody had poisoned his wine or his food because the best way to kill a king at that time was by poison, to get close to him and you poison him. And he's saying, like, I bet he, like, he had servants. He hired people out, like, and he had them taste it first, and then if they, all right, then, then he would pass it on. I was like, yeah, that's pretty smart. I don't know. It doesn't tell us in the text, but it seems like a smart idea. It seems like what John would do if he was Nehemiah's situation. Well, I risk my life, but I can risk my servants' lives. And so he would taste the wine for the king, and so life is good for him. He's plush. He's living in the palace. Things are good for Nehemiah. I mean, he's in the, the, the best crib you can possibly be in at this time. But then all of a sudden, 
uh, his, some buddies of his come back from a trip, you know, we don't know what they're doing, business, spring break, you know, I have no idea, just passing through, and he talks to them and says, hey, how is Jerusalem? And they tell you, they said, let me tell you, it is horrendous, it is terrible down there. The walls are broken down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And something happens in Nehemiah, which is kind of interesting whenever he hears that, it breaks his heart. And he, there's, what breaks his heart is interesting because Nehemiah, even though he was a Jew, we have no reason to think he had ever been to the city of Jerusalem before. And even if he had been, he had never seen Jerusalem at its zenith. When it contained the, the temple of Yahweh, which is one of the seven wonders, one of the wonders of the world at the time. And for some reason, whenever he heard about what the state that Jerusalem was in, it, it broke his heart. The distance was between what we talked about in the beginning of the series, the distance between the way things were and the way things should be, the way things are right now and the way that God intended them to be, that distance broke his heart. And we asked the question in the beginning, is there anything that God's used to break your heart? Is there a state, because we look around the world, we're like, it's very easy, whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning or not, whether you have a, much of a background in Christianity or not, it's really easy to look around the world and say, you know, it's not the way that it should be. The world is broken, right? I mean, you only have to see a few headlines this morning to, to realize the world is broken. It's not working the way it's supposed to be, and sometimes I think actually, I think all the time for all of us, God would desire to break our heart with something. For you, it might be the state of, that your school is in. Maybe you're a college student and you look around at school and you see the thousands of people who are, who are getting ready to enter into life that are learning about what life is all about and you see them and they have no connection to the God who created them. And you, and you see like, if they just keep on going, life is full of darkness for them, and that breaks your heart. Maybe if you live around here, you look at the campus of Coastal Carolina, 10,000 students on that campus, and the estimates that I hear from people who know are maybe 2% evangelical Christian on the campus at Coastal Carolina. That means that among 10,000 students, there might be 200 students who call Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior. That should break our hearts. Or maybe you look around the city of Myrtle Beach and the area that we call the Grand Strand and you say 300,000 people live here. And you, it seems like there's a church on every corner and we wouldn't have much need, but the stats say that about 60% of those 300,000 people do not go to church regularly. And somewhere like maybe about 75% of those, the stats that I've seen recently, do not have a relationship a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And you should hear about that. And maybe back where you come from, if you're here for the summer or something's going on, you hear about something and inexplicably it breaks your heart. The distance between the way things are and the way that God intended them to be should break our hearts. But oftentimes what happens, and we're going to talk about this later on, is that you might be Nehemiah and your life is good, life is comfortable, life is plush for you. you got things going on, your career is rolling out ahead of you, like stardust and unicorns are what takes you to work every day, like life is magic for you. And oftentimes we get distracted by how good life is that we don't see the need. 
And sometimes it just takes us just for a moment seeing the need and letting God use that need to break our heart. And Nehemiah didn't just sit around and he didn't run off and start to do something. He didn't form a committee and form a a nonprofit and start to do something. Neither did he just sit around and say, God, if you want to do something in that, I just pray you would open doors for me. It says that it broke his heart and he started fasting and praying. And then it doesn't say it, but we know he was also planning. Because a day came whenever he stood before the king and the, and the king noticed that he was downcast. He was, he was having a bad day. And the king said, what's going on? And Nehemiah said, why shouldn't I be downcast? Why shouldn't my heart be broken when the city of my father's lies in ruins? And the king said, what do you want me to do for you? And instead of him saying, oh, junk, I didn't think this would happen. I, I don't know. But he had been praying, fasting, and he had been planning. And whenever the king said, what do you want me to do for you? He said, here's what I need. I need this, and I need this, and I need this, and this, and this. He had a whole list of things that he needed in order to make the wall happen around Jerusalem. And the king said, God moved upon his heart, and he said, so be it. And he left, and he went, and he drives in Jerusalem with all the stuff that the king sent. And he takes a, a, a nighttime ride around Jerusalem and sees the state of the wall, and it's even worse than he anticipated it to be. And then he gathers everybody together and says, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build the wall. And what we talked about when we got to that part was it's so easy to sit around living in or around a city that's in ruins and just be complaining about it all the time. But eventually, if we want to join God in his great work that he's been working since the very beginning, then we should lay down our laziness, lay down our listlessness, and join God in the great work that he has. We said that churches sometimes view themselves as against the city, like we're here and we see how how evil this place is and we just kind of cluster by ourselves and we complain about the politics and we complain about the morality and we complain about the state of the church and the state of Christians and our neighborhoods and nobody will ever do anything, nobody ever commit, but we just stand around, we're like against the city and we're just kind of huddled around just saying, man, this, things are really bad out there. And then some churches are just like with the city. And there's no real discernible difference. Like, their lives look just like everybody else around them, and there's no discernible difference in them. But God has called us neither to be against the city nor with the city. He's called us to be a church for the city that exists. Because it, when Nehemiah got to Jerusalem, it says that the people who are outside who opposed him didn't, want, didn't like him because he was seeking the flourishment of the city. And that we should be seeking the flourishment of the city as well. We should be saying that we're not against them. We want to engage the community around us so that they can see and hear and experience the goodness that is found in Jesus Christ. And what that looks like is that doesn't mean that you're just going to be sitting around doing a Bible study, praying all the time. It means that if you have a career or if you're a student, that you're going to do what God has called you to do, where God has planted you, and seek to flourish there, and to seek to use your career or your career as a student or your motherhood or your parenthood or your neighbor, like all the stuff that you're doing in life to use your, like maybe you're taking karate or hot yoga, that you use those things 
for the glory of God. That you're, that you're not a Christian who just happens to be an architect or a Christian that happens to be a teacher, but you seek to be, how do I incorporate what God has, what he has done through Jesus Christ in my life in such a way that, that I, am, I am, this is the way that he left heaven and became a cross-cultural missionary to earth and took on flesh and incarnated here, how do I incarnate Jesus Christ into my sphere as a teacher, as an insurance agent, as a student, as a pharmacist, as a real estate agent, as an attorney, whatever it is that you do in life. And when Nehemiah said, come, let's build, that's the call that goes out to us. Come, let's build the kingdom of God. Does it mean build a big church building? Though that may come. It means let's incorporate what the kingdom into our lives in the way that we leave. We saw that what happened with Nehemiah is that an awareness of the distance between where God, where things were and where God wanted them to be led to a vision. He saw what could be and what should be. And that led to a strategy, his plan to, to build, and that led to courage. Because whenever he had, he had an awareness of the problem, he had a vision for where it could lead, he, under God's direction and in prayer, made a strategy, then that gave him courage whenever he stood before the king and the king said, what do you need? He said, here's what I need, and the king gave it to him. And whenever he went to the city, he said, hey, the king, God's hand and his favor is upon me. Let's build. And everybody said, yeah, let's do it. It brought courage. But then we saw the last thing that happened was that Nehemiah didn't just come to build a wall, he came to rebuild a people. That the, the wall was a means to the end, that they rediscovered the word of God and they, he had his buddy Ezra come out and preach the word and it broke the people's hearts and they committed themselves to God. And last week we talked about how they had a great giant celebration and joy. But the story doesn't end there. There's one more chapter, and it's kind of interesting and frustrating what happens at this point. Because Nehemiah, he's been in the city of Jerusalem for 12 years, but he's got to go back to the king. He wants to stay in Jerusalem, but he's got to go back to the king to ask him for permission. Because when the king first sent him, he said, how long are you going to be gone? And Nehemiah said, this is how long it's going to take. And when that time is up, he has to come back to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know how long he was back in Jerusalem. It could have been a quick trip. It could have been several years. We don't know. But we know that whenever he gets back, this is right after the people have committed themselves. We will follow you. We will do whatever you've called us to. We're making a covenant with you. We're committed to you. We're committed to the scripture. We're going to do all that he says that he, he told us to do. And they're committed. And they are for it. This is they, they had such a celebration in the temple that it was heard for miles and miles outside the city of Jerusalem. They had such joy. And so Nehemiah's like, awesome, I got you guys set up. I gotta go back to Susa. I'll be right back. You guys keep things away. Like, this is going great. I'll be right back. And so Nehemiah goes, and when he comes back, things have already started to fall apart. But you know what? That's kind of like not news in scripture. It's sort of like our legacy as believers and followers of Jesus. It's kind of been from the very beginning. I mean, think about Adam and Eve. In the very beginning, they're in the garden. Like, things are awesome. They're naked and not ashamed. Like, there's, like, fruit grown on trees. Like, they're in charge. Adam has the corner office. He's in charge of the whole deal. He's running the show. 
He's walking with God, he and his wife, daily in the garden. God's gone for like 24 hours and they flip out. And the whole thing falls apart. Think about Moses. You guys have seen the movie. Like He he leads the people out of Egypt. God brings plagues upon the mightiest nation at the time to get them out. He parts the Red Sea. And then they complain that they don't have food. They complain at the Red Sea, you brought us out to kill us. God opens the Red Sea. They walk through on dry land. They get on the other side. Fast forward just a little while. They, They start complaining that they don't have food. And God said, I'll give you food. So manna, like sweet bread from heaven falls down every night and they gather it and eat it. I mean, you're eating bread from the bakery of heaven every morning. Fast forward a few days, they're complaining again that all they're eating is manna. All we get to eat is heavenly bread. This has got old for us. We want some meat, right? We're from the South. We understand that. So they said, we want some meat. God brings a a flock of quail that just happens to fly in mass into their camp and like sit right there waiting for them to come and kill them and eat them and they have meat. Then they complain again over and over and over they complain. God is leading them daily by a pillar of cloud by day that moves. Like that's how they know where to go. They're just following it. And they're a pillar of fire by night that keeps them warm and guides them where they should go. And yet they still complain. The, the, very, the, very, the, very, the very day that God like, guides Moses up to the mountain, he's led them out by all these mighty miracles. Moses goes up on the mountain. He's gone for 40 days. In those 40 days, the people decide, hey, you know that God who like, put the plagues in, in Egypt and turned the Nile into blood and led us out in dry lands in the middle of the Red Sea and you know, the pillar of class, you know, all that stuff? Yeah, um, Aaron, why don't you, if we bring you all our jewelry, could you build us a golden cow so we can worship that? Because we're kind of done with this whole thing. We've forgotten already the awesome God. So Nehemiah leaves the city of Jerusalem. God has done amazing things. They build the wall in 52 days, led by a guy who was a, he was a wine guy. He was a sommelier, a wine taster, leads this giant building project. They build the wall. He leaves for a little while, and whenever he comes back, things are already falling apart. We're going to look at just a few quick sections here. Chapter 13, verse 6. 13, verse 6. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem and then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Now, so the big deal about this is uh, um, Tobiah was not a God-fearing man. And so he was unclean. And so he should not have a place to live in in the temple. He's taken a holy place and put this guy who shouldn't be there in it. And then, listen, prepare for him a chamber in the course of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. You're going to see, like, Nehemiah does not play around. He does not play around. It gets worse. I threw out the, the furniture of Tobiah out of the chambers, like something from a, 
from a um, reality show. And then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. He was taking up space in the temple that was reserved for that they would bring in the, the, the people would come and bring like these offerings for the Levites that the Levites would live off of. And they took this room and said, yeah, the Levites, yeah, they don't really need this stuff. Why don't you live here? Because you're an important man. We want you to have a nice, nice place. So Nehemiah gets back, and they already have forgotten. He throws them out on the streets. Then look at verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites, so that, that's like, that would be like, um, in our situation, it's not quite the same. Neither, deal, neither Dale nor I are any kind of um, uh, staff, official, full or part-time staff at this point. Um, Jamin is. And uh, it would be like, if we were on staff and we were dependent upon you guys to, to give uh, in order for us to live, uh, people just stopped giving. I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers, so this is hitting Jamin close to home right here, the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So you guys weren't given the money. They weren't given the money at the time, and so Jamin couldn't feed his family, so he ran out to, the, to his wife's family farm in Aner to, like, farm and keep his family alive. <laughs> so I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. Then look down in verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah... People treading wine presses on the Sabbath. So now God said the Sabbath day, that's the seventh day of the week, that'd be our Saturday. He said, that is holy to me. You shall do no work upon that day. And the purpose of that was for them to remember that just as he rested on the seventh day, that they rest. And that it reminds them that they are human, that they were created, and that God is their provider, they aren't their provider. And if you don't go home and work today, God will still provide so it was a holy day for them to be working. It was a huge deal. And bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of, Jerusalem, of Judah. In Jerusalem itself, then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? Did not our God bring all this disaster on us and, and on this city? So he's saying, hey, look, the reason we had to rebuild the wall is because we were disobeying God and according to his, what he said he would do when we disobeyed him, he would scatter us and destroy our city. So the very thing we just rebuilt is because we had forgotten and done this. And now you're doing the exact same thing again. The mortar is still not dry on the walls and you're already going out your own way. And as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. That way there'd be no trade going in and out of the city. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. That's not like the Christian laying hands. It means like, like for real, like, like 
out in the country where I come from, like carrying a knife, like laying hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. <laughs> they didn't, did they? Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to your greatness of your steadfast love. And Nehemiah was serious about this. We're not going to read the, the section, but there's another uh, situation he confronts about people who had intermarried with people they shouldn't have intermarried with, and they didn't even know how to speak uh, the Jewish language. And uh, it says he, he, he pulled them out, and he beat them, and pulled out their hair. <laughs> Nehemiah was serious about following God. And that, the reason this is important is because Nehemiah came not just to rebuild a wall, as I mentioned. He came to rebuild a people. See, here's the deal. Walls crumble. They always require maintenance. Meg and I are getting ready to spend some money that we've been saving up, and it's, gonna, it's hurting me to write this check. We're building a, a fence in our backyard. And because of the... Con- because of the regulations in my neighborhood, it has to be one kind of fence that I would have to like cut off an arm and leg to, to pay with, to, to, to pay for it, and another one that's wood fence. So the problem with buying this wood fence is I know that though it's cheaper, it means I'm gonna have to upkeep this wood fence. Or more likely, I'm gonna have to hire somebody to upkeep this wood fence because the wood because the wood is gonna crumble, the paint is gonna peel, it always requires work. Walls crumble, they require maintenance. And if you're in a city like Jerusalem and the city starts to grow, not only do the walls require maintenance, but what happens when the city grows? You have to build another wall. And then the city grows again, you gotta build another wall. There's always building that has to happen. It never stops. You're always building. But we wanna stop and we wanna like, just forget it, right? We are never standing still. We're either decaying or we're growing. We're never just sitting still. And any time that we want to mail it in and just, just forget it, things crumble around us. One generation believes, we see this throughout history, one generation believes in God, follows him. The next generation assumes. It's like, yeah, we, we, everybody loves God. We're, we're all good. And the next generation forgets. It happens that quickly. Look in our nation, how fast things have changed as the past 50 years. David to the captivity, everything fell away side, things fell away side I, I told you about already. Um, even between now and when Jesus Christ would, would come on the earth, uh, he said they were full of whitewashed tombs. They were dirty cups. They were clean on the outside, but dirty on the inside. They had forgotten. The, the reformers, uh, the, the church had kind of gone off the rails through the middle, uh, medieval times, and uh, they rediscovered the doctrines of grace. They rediscovered scripture, and they committed themselves to that. And on the back side of that, a, a, a th- well-known theologian said, the church must be simple reform- reformanda. And what that means is the church must be always reforming. Always reforming. We can't just assume that everything's going all right. We always have to be rededicating ourselves to the work at hand. We always have to be building the wall. We have to build it over and over again. The city keeps growing. Our, we must change or we'll die. That's the where we found ourselves in, in the story at this point. 
we put out this call to each other to say, hey, we have to build this church, this city that is for the city around us. We have to build a church that exists not against the city, not with the city, but for the city. We have to be a people that live on mission. We have to be connected to Jesus Christ. We have to follow him and give him our all. The ladies have been going through a Bible study. It says, you know, what it means to be a disciple means that Jesus Christ is Lord and I'm not. All my life belongs to him. I don't get to decide what I want to do with my life anymore. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But we don't just like make one decision and then it's all done and then we mail it in. We have to constantly be rededicating our hearts to Jesus Christ. We have to constantly be preaching the gospel to ourselves and to each other to remind ourselves what this thing is about. This is our part of the story. This story that God's been rolling out since the very beginning, the story that, that David found himself in, that Moses found himself in, that Nehemiah found himself in, that the early church found themselves in, this is our time. We get 20, 40 years to be the church. This is it. This is your shot. Most of, our, most of the people in this room are pretty young. This is your chance to be the church that God has called us to be. What are you gonna do with your shot? And if you're not so young, time is ticking away. What are you gonna do with the time that you have left to build the church that he's called us to build? Being a citizen of God's city, of God's country, of God's kingdom means that we are always building. This is true, first of all, organizationally. So if you've been around our kind of community for a little while, you've seen like things have already changed since we just, I mean, we're still a baby, baby church plant. When we were a baby, baby, baby church plant, things have already changed since then. And if we're gonna grow, things are gonna always be changing. We're always gonna have to be keeping up the wall. We're always gonna have to be expanding the wall. We're always gonna have to be working and devoting ourselves to the task. We never arrive a summer, a year ago, like there would be like less than half the people in this room that were here. It was very, very awkward at times. And things have changed since then. And if we're gonna continue to grow, things will have to continue to change. Uh, there's this guy, Peter Drucker, he actually wasn't a believer, but he was a, a leadership kind of guru. And he said, anytime a, an organization changes by 20%, it grows by 20%, you have to reinvent the whole thing. So what that means is that sunny mornings, if we're gonna to continue to grow, are gonna look different a year from now than they do today. It means community groups are gonna look different a year from now than they do today. It means our relationships are gonna look different a year, a year from now than they do today. Now I come in here, I know everybody, people ask like what's going on in so-and-so's life, I pretty much know kind of what's going on in people's life. A year from now, two years from now, we all won't know that. It's gonna require change as we grow. But if we don't, we begin to decay and go backwards. The mission and the head of the mission must be our number one priority. Not whether we're comfortable, not whether we like what's going on, but the mission and the head of the mission, Jesus Christ, he's the one that determines everything. Not only is it true that we are always building organizationally, but more importantly, it means it's true spiritually. As I was looking at this story of Nehemiah and seeing how things 
change so quickly and just the story of God's people throughout history, how it's changed so quickly over and over again. I just thought about what are some factors that cause us to fall away and forget the task that's in front of us. And first of all, we, we leave off the centrality and authority of God's word. If you leave off the centrality and authority of God's word, and I'm not talking about just like we come to a church that believes the Bible and somebody preaches it. I'm talking about in your personal life. If you're a believer and you really believe that this is God-breathed words on these, page, on these pages, that it's his message to you and that he is the almighty creator of God and he's the one who gave his son for you, then this should be the center of our life. In my life, what I should be thinking, searching for authority shouldn't be what is the modern current trend. It shouldn't be what's going on uh, around the world this morning. It shouldn't be sports. It shouldn't be anything else. The center thing The thing that I should build my life around is the centrality and authority of the scriptures. That in this book it contains all that I need to know for life and godliness. That I need to begin, if I, maybe some of us in here don't have this yet, and this, you're a new believer, and that's okay. Some of us have been a believer a long time, and we've just kind of been marking time. But all of us need to be able to build a grid that comes from Scripture to, that determines how we see life. All of us see life through a grid. You might be a white Southerner. You might be a, a, you might be a, a rich uh, whatever. You might, be, uh, you might be a poor Southern guy like me. But whatever, the, the way your background kind of determines how you view life. But what we all have to do is no matter where we're coming from, let Scripture reform the grid that causes us, that through which we see life. The, the way we start to, to forget the mission and we forget that we're building is that we leave off the centrality and authority of God's word in our personal, everyday lives. Number two is that we aren't committed to growing spiritually. We aren't radically committed to growing spiritually. What are your commitments and goals in life? If you just think, like, just to be real honest, real true with yourself, what are my real commitments, my real focuses, my real goal? if not at the very top is to grow spiritually as a believer in Jesus Christ, you aren't going to. We have to be radically committed to personal spiritual growth. How do you know if you're growing? That's a question for you to ask yourself. Number three, we aren't actively engaged in spiritual community. Maybe you're like, man, my life is just really full. I'm really busy. I got a lot of stuff going on. I just don't have time for more relationships. I don't have time for more meetings. But whenever you get outside of spiritual community, you start to forget what life is all about. Because you're, what you're saying is, I feel pretty confident that I can remind myself of what is most important all the time. When we look at the history of the church and we see that's not the way things happen, we forget that fast. We see it here in the story. Number four A, if we aren't active, we, are a, we leave off the centrality and authority of God's word in our personal life, if we aren't radically committed to personal spiritual growth, if we aren't actively engaged in spiritual community, then that will lead to one of two directions. One, it will lead to your spiritual senses being dulled. And you'll be lulled into listlessness and apathy. 
Have you ever been through that? If you've been a Christian more than like a week, you've experienced that. If I leave off those things, I start to go like, I start to get crazy. I start to go my own way. And either one of two things happen. I'll just get apathetic and listless. And I don't really care anymore. It's sort of like the gym. Right? Like if you're, if you're going, I remember, I remember vaguely what it was like to be going to the gym. And it wasn't such a big deal. Like when I'm in the habit, I'm just going, I'm going to the gym. But if I'm out like a week, two weeks, it's like you're starting all over again and it's horrible, isn't it? That's why, I, that's why I'm like this. You get lulled into listlessness and apathy in our spiritual walk or you'll retain a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. What that means is you'll forget Jesus. You'll still have all the forms going on. Maybe you've been around church long enough, you know all the right things to say. When you come into the the meeting, you you know where the books of the Bible are, you turn there, you know the Christian smile, right? The Christian smile, how are you doing? Got all this stuff going on. You know the right place in the song to, to do your hands like this or to raise it like this or to, to clap. or You have all the right stuff. You know the right answers to answer when people ask you what's going on, but you, you've lost and you've forgotten your first love. That's what happened to the church at Ephesus. We, the first book we studied as a church plant was the the book of Ephesians, and it's amazing because it's a letter to a successful church plant. Paul has nothing bad to say about them, but just a few years later, maybe 20, 30, 40 years later, we see in the book of Revelation, a warning goes out to the book of Ephesus, and it says, hey, you guys have forgotten what this thing is all about. You still have everything going on. You got all your classes, your meetings, you got cool band, you got good preachers, but you've forgotten your first love. It happens that fast. Our mission gets confused into a, when that happens into a dozen different dangerous directions. Anybody ever been a part of a church that fights over the color of the carpet or what week VBS is going to be in or the songs that you're singing week to week? That's when we get confused. One generation believes, the next assumes, and the next forgets or rejects. And because of that, we must always be reorienting ourselves around the gospel. The gospel. The story of who Jesus is and what he did for you. You can memorize a lot of scripture and have a form of godliness and yet forget. But whenever you are reminded by the gospel of who Jesus is, who you were apart from him, who you are apart from him, and what he did for you, then that breaks our hearts over and over again and draws us back to him. It never gets old. It's always fresh. And those moments where it doesn't feel precious and it doesn't feel fresh to you is because you've already been dulled into listlessness and apathy. And the only antidote to that, the only cure, is to, is to pour yourself into the gospel. Pour yourself to, and 
and around people who are saturated with the gospel so that God would use that to break through that outer shell and awaken your heart back to him. If we're a member of God's kingdom, it means we're always building. It's not just true organizationally or spiritually. It's true personally. That's where the battle is fought. Dead churches are dead because they're full of dead people. Listless churches are listless because they're full of listless people. Churches that aren't doing the mission aren't doing the mission because they're full of people who aren't doing the mission. It's our work, our personal work, to continually seek to be revived and awakened by the glorious grace, the beauty that is found in the face of Jesus Christ. I want to read this one verse and I'll be done. I don't have it on the screen. It's 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10 through 15. According to the grace of God given me, given to me, that's Paul, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, that means he came and he preached Jesus Christ to them for the first time, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, those are things that will last, or wood, hay, or straw, those are things that are combustible. Each one's work will become manifest. It will be declared. It will be clear. For the, for the day, that's when Jesus Christ returns, we'll disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If that work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. You know what that means? It means you're always building on your life. The only difference is what kind of material you're building with. We can never mail it in and just think we've arrived and made it. Personally, spiritually, organizationally, we always have to be re-reminded, re continually reorienting ourselves personally, reorienting ourselves as a community around the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that will keep us awakened, that will keep us alive, that will keep us fresh, that will keep us on mission. Otherwise, we will drift into listlessness or we will retain a form of godliness and deny the power thereof. We wanna build something in our personal lives and as a community that will stand the test of time. The only way we can do that is by reorienting ourselves continually around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to take a couple of minutes before communion, and Jamin's just going to play. And I want you to just ask yourself, what am I building with? What am I building my life with? What am I building it upon? What's most important to me? What's my goal? What am I aiming for? And 
And let the gospel, let the good news of what Jesus is and who he is and what he has done for us by taking the penalty that we deserved, his body, his blood for us to unite us to Christ. And then um, uh, I and Dale and I will come up and we'll offer the bread and juice. And if you're a believer in Christ, no matter where you call church home, you're welcome to partake with us this morning. You take a piece of the bread, you dip it in the juice and celebrate him. Remind yourself. I think it's an important part of what communion is for is to remind us weekly of who he is and what he has done for us and to bring us back to him. Father, I pray you would awaken our hearts this morning to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. God, that you'd help us ask the question, what are we building on? That you would help us to, uh, to repent of materials that we're using that aren't of you. To repent of becoming listless and apathetic or having a form but denying the power of forgetting you. Meet with us this morning as we communion with you and with the bread and the juice as we sing to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.